0: Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Today's business leaders are saying that sustainability and diversity metrics are key to the way they do business. But what does that look like in practice? Stick around until the end of this episode to hear more.
1: From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm David Folkenflick and this is On Point. A Thanksgiving surprise. President Trump travels to Afghanistan. He serves troops dinner and some apparent news. The Taliban wants to make a deal. We'll see if they want to make a deal. It's got to be a real deal, but we'll see. But they want to make a deal. And they only want to make a deal because you're doing a great job. That's the only reason they want to make a deal. So I want to thank you, and I want to thank
2: the Afghan soldiers.
1: Richard Spencer is ousted as Navy secretary over his handling of a Navy SEAL at the center of a war crimes case in which the president intervened. Spencer takes a parting shot in this interview with David Martin of CBS News.
2: What do I stand for as Secretary of the Navy? Good order and discipline of the United States Navy. That's a prime tenet. This, in fact, erodes that.
3: But what's wrong with uh, following a lawful order from the
1: Commander-in-Chief?
2: Nothing. Everyone should follow a lawful order. That's, That's good order and discipline. I could not in my conscience do this.
1: And The New York Times reports that Trump knew of the whistleblower's complaint when he finally released nearly $400 million in military aid to Ukraine in September. House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler invites the president to testify at hearings next week. No clarity yet on whether that will happen, but don't hold your breath. On Tuesday, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo dodged when a reporter asked if he would testify. When the time is
4: right, all good things happen.
5: I don't have much to say with respect to uh, the Ukraine investigation.
1: Uh, Other than this. Now, look, I know many folks have spent the last 36 hours avoiding politics, sidestepping arguments over whether the size of Trump's crowd set records or whether his body looks like Rocky's. Guess what? Now for this hour, this very special hour, we'll offer you a respite. From the respite. Join us anytime at OnPointRadio.org or on Twitter and Facebook at OnPointRadio. I'm giving thanks for many things this weekend, but right now I'm super thankful for our stellar guests assembled for our reporters' roundtable. With us from Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, Kimberly Atkins. She's senior news correspondent for WBUR. Hey, Kim. Hi, David. Also joining us from Washington, Janet Hook, national political reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Hey, Janet. Hey, David. And from Hanover, New Hampshire, on point zone news analyst Jack Beatty joins us. Hello, Jack.
6: Hello, David, Janet, and Kim.
1: We'll be talking about impeachment later this hour, but let's turn our eyes east to Afghanistan. Janet Hook, uh, the president says we're going to be entering in talks. It's because of uh, all the good work of American troops in Afghanistan. I talk, called it the forever war at the top of the hour. It does seem as though it's it, it, you know it's closing in on almost two decades there. Um, You know, what would be the basis for such talks and what would be the the look of uh, a likely resolution that would be appealing for Americans to strike?
3: Well, it's hard to see right now what has happened that led him to say that there's a new turn of optimism. It helps to look back to um, just a few months ago, he had uh, said that he was apparently close to a deal with the Taliban had invited their representatives to the United States to uh, to meet at Camp David and then abruptly canceled the meeting before Americans even knew it was about to happen. Um, just before the scheduled meeting, there had been a big attack in Kabul that um, the Taliban had been responsible for. Um, so, So it's not clear what has happened in the three months since then to change the picture. I mean, the big sticking point is... Is Whether or not there's going to be a ceasefire, the Taliban don't want a ceasefire until the United States is out and the United States is not going to just leave without any uh, further kind of guarantees. So um, this is one of those Donald Trump pronouncements that we have to actually wait and see if what he says is true.
1: Jack Beattie, let me just pick up on that for a moment. You know, President – Afghan President Ashraf Ghani ladled praise all over Trump saying, you know, you're the guy. It's because of you, troops, but really because of you that all of this is happening. Uh, My colleague uh, this morning, Steve Inskeep, raised this question this morning. You know, as you look back, Jack, in terms of the president's record on Afghanistan, the president's record in terms of other peace talks, uh, North Korea and others, do you – I mean, do we have to come back every time to this fundamental question Janet raised of whether or not what the president says is to be believed? Or are there signs that perhaps he's sincere about this?
6: Well, he may be sincere and also either deluded or simply filling uh, an empty second with an empty promise. We don't know an empty claim. We just don't know. I mean, it's reached the point with the president where, uh, you know, almost everything he says has to be uh, has to be assessed for its, uh, its, its, its fiction value. A couple of weeks ago, for example, he said that his daughter had, in, during his term through some program, his daughter had created 14 million jobs. Well, only 6 million have been created in the whole economy since Trump was president. He's just, he just says these things off the top of his head. Is this a case of that? We don't know, but you just have to be deeply skeptical.
1: I'd like to uh, take a call now from Tampa, Florida. Kerry, thanks for listening. Thanks for calling in this holiday weekend. Uh, What are you thinking when when you're hearing uh, the president talk about Afghanistan?
5: Um, I think the most important thing is to have an end game, right? Begin with the end in mind. Great leaders have always said, here's what we're going to do, and then we're going to come home. And there seems to be absolutely no end in sight. Um, There have to be a clear set of goals for our, you know, troops to come home. I mean it's a it's a it's a wonderful gesture, right? The president gets on Air Force One and then lands and has some turkey and some gravy and, and I, I guarantee you, having served overseas, the troops really appreciated that. It's a wonderful gesture. It's a lot of time in the air, uh, going there and coming back. There is always, you know, a threat to Air Force One, but not really. But the reality is you get back on Air Force One and you come back to Washington and you get down to Mar a Lago and they're still there in harm's way. And so there's going to be a deal with the Taliban. How about this? Why don't we all just pack it up and come on home and let Afghanistan work on Afghanistan?
1: And Kerry, just want to briefly ask you before I let you go. You said I think you said you were in the service. Uh, what branch did you serve in?
5: Yeah, I served active duty in the Marine Corps, but it was during um, Bush, Reagan, and Bush one. But mm-hmm. the reality of being overseas is there has to be an end game, right? You have to bring people home, all, all that equipment and all those resources. Wh- why? What, what? Where is there a clear and present threat to the United States or our allies? In Afghanistan, they have no standing army. You know, and at the end of the days, you have to walk in another man's shoes, right? We're mm-hmm. occupying another country. What would it be like if, let's say, another country was occupying the United States? We would be the insurgents, and we would never stop killing the people that were occupying our country until what happens?
1: Until they leave. And that's uh, the great question about how we accomplish that. Kerry, uh, thanks for calling in. Thanks for your service. And uh, thank you for joining us this holiday weekend. I want to turn to a different uh, story, but one that, uh, you know, involves the world of the military. And that is what we heard at the top, uh, Kim Atkins, uh, the question of the dismissal of the Navy secretary uh, he had said essentially that uh, President Trump had intervened uh, when there was a process ongoing to figure out uh, what uh, what would ultimately be the handling of a Navy SEAL who had been accused of war crimes and ultimately convicted of a single count uh, of uh, posing with a dead uh, you know, enemy combatant uh, in, in a way that violates the military code. What have we learned a little bit about the president's actions and what do we learn about the uh, friction, if any, between the military and the president?
7: Well, it's one of these rare cases where friction within the Pentagon, within the military, uh, is exposed publicly, you know, for much of uh, President Trump's administration, certainly uh, under the uh, leadership of former Defense Secretary Mattis. All of that was never confirmed. It was really kept behind the scenes. But with this case of uh, Navy SEAL Eddie Gallagher, who, as you said, was accused of war crimes, of, of, of killing an uh, isis fighter and was acquitted of all but one charge, and that was posing with a photograph of this fighter's corpse. Uh, What usually happens is then there is a review internally uh, within the military about what happens next president trump according to richard spencer the former navy secretary inserted himself in this made it very clear that he did not want uh, gallagher to lose uh his designation as a seal uh who w- intervened in order to get him released from the brig really was involved uh in a, along the way in a way a commander-in-chief normally is not uh and finally uh Uh, Spencer was asked to resign by uh, Secretary uh, Esper after all of this uh, for basically going around uh, the the defense secretary and trying to cut a deal uh, on... On Gallagher's behalf with the White House, but what he said afterwards, what Spencer said afterwards, is that this revealed that the president really doesn't have an understanding of how the military works, about uh, the way that processes are carried out, and also just doesn't understand uh, the military much at all. It was very critical uh, in his interview afterwards, in, in with CBS, uh, and also in an op-ed, making it very clear that he thinks that the president doesn't understand the military. It's a very strong and stunning rebuke uh, from a former leader of a, of a branch of the military.
1: Janet Hook, one of the th- uh, things that struck me about this, we have about a minute and a half or so before br- the first break, but it's that in thinking about this, it was clear in some of the the reporting in recent days that uh, Eddie Gallagher, uh, the Navy, see a former Navy SEAL in question, uh very much knew he had to lobby the president in a public way. And a lot of that took place on Fox News. That is, it's very hard to understand uh, sort of some of the decision making and some of the messaging of this White House without really understanding its relationship to that. This process seems to have played out uh, in Fox News and in other forums that you don't usually see military justice uh, uh, being handled in. Uh, What does that tell us about the president and what does that tell us about this instance?
3: Right. I mean, can you imagine a an avenue more at odds with the military chain of command ethos, you know, the idea of going on TV to have your your case made? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in a way, it just is sort of the latest example of how all all of the decision making process within the administration, but it's particularly at odds with the sort of orderliness of the military chain of command. So much can be derailed by somebody just getting Trump's Personal backing, mm-hmm. um, and and the whole episode was sort of this um, debate about what is the wor- the the most dangerous way to undermine the military by having the commander in chief get involved inappropriately or having an underling objecting to that. I mean, Trump is a very disruptive figure, and this is just showing how he is at the Pentagon.
1: Well, speaking of that, I'd like my guest to hold. I'd like all of you out there to stick with us. We're going to talk about impeachment and Trump world. What's new, what it means and where things go from here. Join us. Have you hit a tipping point one way or the other that determined how you feel about impeachment? What was that? I'm David Folkenflick, and this is On Point.
0: Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint On Point. That's Indeed.com onpoint On Point terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed support for this podcast comes from is business broken a podcast from bu questrom school of business in a recent episode series ceo mindy luber says sustainability has reached a board level
8: look if you're an agricultural company and you're not thinking about water risk you're an apparel company, you're not thinking about risk to your cotton crop around the world. If you are a bank and not thinking about stranded assets of fossil fuels,
0: you're not probably doing your due diligence. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of the episode.
1: This is On Point. I'm David Folkin This is the Week in the News Holiday Edition. Why not join the conversation around our holiday table? We're talking this segment about Trump world, the scandals, the impeachment, what we've learned and why and whether we care. Follow us on the Twitters and Facebook at On Point Radio. We're speaking uh, today, this edition with Janet Hook. She's national political reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Kim Atkins, senior news correspondent for WBUR and our own news point on point news analyst, uh, Jack Beattie, Uh, has been – in some ways, a quieter week, which in any other era would have been an exceptionally newsy one uh, in terms of all the things going on. I guess uh, I'd like to start, Kim Atkins, with uh, a revelation in the New York Times uh, that the president – if you go back to September 11th, the president released – I guess it was $391 million in security and defense aid uh, to the to the Ukrainians uh, to basically help them uh, defensively fend off uh, – uh, Russian-backed uh, insurgents there. Uh, and that that was done, as it turns out, with the knowledge that a whistleblower had filed a formal complaint, essentially alleging that this money was being withheld illegitimately. Kim Atkins, uh, what does that knowledge do for us? Is that consequential? And if so, Why?
7: It is. It's another piece in this uh, picture of what happened over this aid that's the center of this impeachment inquiry. Uh, one of the defenses that the White House and those defending President Trump uh, have had was that, look, there, there is no there there. The money was given, the mon- the aid was ultimately given to Ukraine. There was no investigation or announcement of an investigation by Ukrainian leaders. So how can they be any sort of corruption or problem there if nothing happened. This uh, new reporting reveals that the president knew before he ordered this aid that he had held up to be released that a whistleblower uh, not only existed, but had made a complaint. We knew before uh, that members of Congress were investigating why this aid was on hold. But this makes it clear that the president knew that someone was complaining about it. And it feeds into the uh, the narrative laid out by uh, Chairman uh, Intelligence Chairman Adams. Adam Schiff, all through the two weeks of the impeachment hearings, that the president only released this aid once he got caught. Uh, And so this is additional evidence of that. It makes it harder for the president and his supporters to defend what happened uh, on a factual basis.
1: We also heard uh, Janet Hook from uh, an official, this is again, a Trump administration uh, official uh, who serves at the Office of Management and Budget, which kind of both plans and executes things in some ways in terms of where money is and where it goes uh, for the White House. Uh, And he testified behind closed doors. A transcript was released. And and Janet Hook, I think uh, Mark Sandy essentially said, uh, yeah, for those of us inside the OMB, we had real questions about this too. This was not just a uh, sort of normal holding up of funds for bureaucratic reasons.
3: That's right. Um, And he also, he testified that uh, some... Others had resigned over this. He had expressed his concerns. He thought that it wasn't um, legitimate for the administration to be withholding funding that had been duly appropriated by Congress. So I think between this and the New York Times report about uh, Trump knowing about the whistleblower complaint, it kind of dismantles that whole line of Republican defense about it couldn't be a quid pro quo because uh, it wasn't connected to the Ukraine aid. And and that is just one of a whole series of revelations and developments in the course of the hearings that basically knocks down one Republican defense after the next. They started out complaining that the inquiries behind closed doors. Well, then there were open hearings. Then they were saying, well, it's all hearsay. And then they have firsthand witnesses. And, and it really has kind of backed them up to the point where really about the the only lines of argument that the Republicans have now is Trump's, which is that this is all a politically motivated witch hunt, just trying to discredit everything um, taken together. Or there may be an emerging line of Republican defense, maybe not until it gets to the Senate, that you say, well, yes, it's not in dispute what Trump did. It probably was wrong, but it's not an impeachable offense or not right to remove the president with an election right around the corner um so it, it just really feels like the whole defense of the, the the republicans defense and the white house defense keeps shifting back 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 to this most rudimentary rudimentary challenge to the whole impeachment
1: process speaking of that process uh jack Beattie, there's been a uh you know, uh, an effort to try to get certain kinds of key figures who have been advisors to the president uh, in various ways uh, in front of uh, the various relevant congressional panels who are investigating this stuff. Uh, a court, uh, a federal district court in D.C. ruled against uh, the president and particularly against his former White House counsel, Don McGann. What happened there, uh, Jack?
6: Well, Don McGann is a central figure in the... In the Judiciary Committee's inquiry into obstruction of justice, as you recall in the Mueller report, not only did the president, uh, uh, I think, order his his legal counsel to fire special uh, Robert Mueller, uh, he ordered him to deny that he had ordered him to do that. In other words, lie about it. That's obstruction of justice. That's a Janus face obstruction of justice. On the one hand, fire him. On the other hand, lie about it. It's a and and that's that's said by Mueller. I mean by by McGahn. That's admitted to in the Mueller report. And the White House, interestingly, it comes out in this opinion, was willing to have um, uh, McGahn go to the Judiciary Committee and testify in private. They just didn't want him on television. Essentially. Saying the president obstructed justice. So, uh, and the opinion is a remarkable opinion, 120-page opinion. Uh, the 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 judge Ketanee Brown Jackson was on the short list to replace uh, Antonin Scalia. Merrick Garland ultimately was picked. Didn't get on, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's almost certain to be a uh, a nominee of some future Democrat. She would be the first African American woman on the Supreme Court, and her opinion is a model of ju- of judicial reasoning and scholarly uh, argument. So not not and it's a partisan su-
1: uh, of ruling from the bench.
6: Not at all. And it and it has a, a it has a, a a lapidary sentence stated simply the primary takeaway from the past 250 years of recorded American history is that presidents are not kings. The White House was essentially making a monarchical claim that the president and people who work for him and even people like McGahn who formally worked for him have absolute immunity because they have been in the around the nimbus of the presidential person. I mean, it's an absurd claim, and she dismisses it with wit and even uh, uh, charm, uh, and, it's, uh, and, and says, you have to testify, uh, Ms. McGann. There is no absolute immunity. Of course, the White House has appealed it. The Democrats uh, were thrilled at the opinion, and yet look, as Charlie Savage points out in the, uh, in the New York Times, the president really won here by losing. He won because uh, this case first came to the court—began in May— when McGahn refused a subpoena, and then in August, the court, the, the, the House asked the court to rule on it, and here comes the ruling in late November. Look at all that time. So that, and that was just the first step. We have to go through an appeals court, and then perhaps the Supreme Court, the president can run out the clock on these, uh, on these judicial proceedings.
1: You know, Jack, you, 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 you talk about the concerns about these monarchical claims, but obviously, uh, you know, Attorney General William Barr has made strong claims in recent days about the powers of the president. Uh, and even to the point of getting a rebuke from some conservative lawyers to say, look, even for us, this is a little too much. I want to take a couple of uh, quick calls from folks on this uh, very matter. Uh, Pamela is calling from Concord, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for calling in.
4: Oh, hi. Can you hear me?
1: Sure, can what are you thinking about
6: all this
4: hi well i 've been following this i 'm um, just in a constant state of of um, my um, my jaw is dropping every day, and mm-hmm. um, I think it 's pretty apparent that the evidence is overwhelming uh, that that the President of the United States of America used tax dollars to extort a fledg- fledgling democracy, and that the House will not just demand that he be impeached but it, it, he has to be impeached with that evidence, but the Senate will never ever. Um, vote for impeachment. And that's because I think it's also pretty clear that they've chosen to either ignore the evidence. I mean, Lindsey Graham has come right out and said he's not even paying attention to it. And they've also withheld evidence by the president telling key first-hand witnesses that they can't testify. But I think that it's so important that we do create a record for the future. It is so not okay to do this. It is so not okay to abuse the office the way that he's, he's done it. And either, I think, what's happening, we're really at a crucible. It will either um, forever show us that this is not okay for the future, or it will, it will be really the end of, I and mean, I don't want to sound like a dramatist, but the end of democracy as we see it. If this Pen- is somehow deemed to be okay, this
1: Pamela, I just want to ask you a very quick question. I believe you mentioned to one of my colleagues uh, when you called in that, that you are a lawyer. Can you pinpoint the thing that said to you, you know what, uh, I think that, that this rises the level of high crimes and misdemeanors? For me, this is this is impeachable.
4: Well, I think it was a building crescendo. Um, I think Fiona Hill's testimony absolutely pushed me over any ledge because I don't want my country that I love. I have two parents with children, World War II, who served five uncles, a brother who was in Afghanistan. I don't want to put the nation through anything it doesn't have to be put through. But Fiona Hill's testimony pushed me over the edge. I was riveted.
1: Okay, thank you for that, Pamela. I want to bounce now to Jay New York. Uh, Doug, thank you so much for listening this holiday weekend. Thanks for calling in. What are your thoughts about all this, Doug?
9: Hey, Hello. Um, I, I really think it's, it's very hypocritical of the Democrats to make a big deal out of this issue with the aid to Ukraine, given that the Democrats, uh, President Obama, wanted to give them blankets and MREs, and the president is actually arming them. I, I also think it's going to fizzle when it gets to uh, the Judiciary Committee. I don't think Nadler's capable of uh, running this thing, and if it ever gets to the Senate, um, Rudy Giuliani is a smart dude, and I think if it ever gets to the Senate, the witnesses that are called are going to reveal that uh, Adam Schiff's staff was in, in touch with the whistleblower before the complaint was filed. So I think the whole thing is just a Democratic show
1: okay. to try to and swing uh, some voters. Doug, may I ask you one quick question? When when people raise the question of uh, the aid was delivered, uh, but there are concerns that uh, the president wanted uh, – wanted the Ukrainians to help him uh, to to go after uh, Hunter Biden and basically using Hunter Biden to go after Joe Biden. Uh, he certainly talked about the Biden's phone call. Tell me why that doesn't doesn't bother you. Why you, why you think that that doesn't rise to a level of concern?
9: I think it's a proper duty of the president to make sure that none of that aid was going to end up in Hunter Biden's pocket. And I think uh, him asking that, Ukraine to make sure that everything was legit over there before he released the aid is totally appropriate.
1: Okay. Thank you so much for that, Doug. We appreciate it. Uh, you know, uh, Janet Hook, I want to go now to, 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 to some of that line of discussion, uh, there are a number of ways in which you've heard that very refrain come through. Uh, let's start with this. Uh, on Sunday, Republican Louisiana Senator John Kennedy gave credence to the conspiracy theory that Ukraine actively interfered in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, including those infamous stolen Democratic emails. The U.S. intelligence community, the Mueller report, a whole lot of other, other evidence says otherwise. Fox News' Chris Wallace pushed back on Kennedy.
6: Senator Kennedy, who do you believe was responsible for hacking the DNC and Clinton campaign computers, their emails? Was it Russia or Ukraine?
5: I don't know, nor do you, nor do any of us. Uh, Miss Hill, uh, well, is I mean, let me let me just, let me just interrupt to say, the entire
6: intelligence community says it was Russia.
5: Right, but it could also be Ukraine. I'm not saying that. I know one way or the other. I'm saying that Ms. Hill is entitled to her opinion, but no rebuttal evidence was allowed
1: to be offered. On Monday, Kennedy walked back that claim, telling CNN's Chris Cuomo, quote, it was Russia who tried to hack the DNC computer. I've seen no indication that Ukraine tried to do it, but he didn't take it all back. Then at a State Department press be- briefing on Tuesday, a reporter asked Secretary of State Mike Pompeo if an investigation should be launched into, again, this so far baseless belief that Ukraine, not Russia, hacked the DNC's emails in 2016. Pompeo's repons- response seemed fairly supportive. Anytime
5: There is information that indicates that any country has messed with American elections.
1: We not only uh, have a right, but a duty to make sure we chase that down. Now, in sworn testimony, Trump's diplomats and officials, uh, current and former, have called that theory a fictional narrative with no validity, including, I think, uh, at times, Pompeo's State Department. Janet Hook, what are we to make about leading figures in the Republican establishment, not all of them uh, Trump- carbon copies, uh, giving giving credence to these things, like, as mentioned earlier, like uh, uh, Lindsey Graham?
3: Well, I just think it's part of a, a Republican strategy to kind of um, obscure and confuse the debate. I think that um, it's it's an amazingly durable rumor and sort of suggestion for one that has so little basis, in fact, and has been contradicted by such Solid sources as the Intelligence Committee, the, the Senate uh, Bipartisan Intelligence Committee, the entire intelligence community. I mean, it's the idea that um, th- that this is a matter of opinion that the Russians were mostly responsible for the hacking of the DNC and the the uh, involvement in the general election. That's not an opinion. It's sort of a bipartisan uh, conclusion that's been drawn um, so all I can say is that the Republicans really have been taking their, the lead on messaging and strategy from Trump at the White House. He's been leaning hard on this um, baseless theory, and um, the, and because his strategy changes, you know, by the day, by the week, so have the Republicans, and this is their, the latest place that they've landed.
1: Jack Beattie, uh, in the minute that we have about left, you know, President Trump uh, is now facing the opening of the House Judiciary Committee, which is going to host its first uh, hearing on Wednesday. It's expected to hear from legal scholars. It's invited the president and his lawyers so far. No, uh, no word yet on that. Trump rallied supporters Tuesday night with this tirade laced with profanities in which he basically said uh, it was – all of this is a hoax, and that it 's going to work to his credit and essentially is there, are there signs that this is in some ways helping the president as he seeks to rally the faithful back to to the fold despite relatively low um, popularity
6: ratings well there was a there was a Dan ball 's piece in The Washington Post about Wisconsin voters, and it found a, a, you know that uh, support for impeachment had gone down since the hearings opened and that the Democratic numbers had, had, had gone down. Trump now beating all the Democratic candidates in Wisconsin. And, you know, uh, the question is, are the Democrats p- pursuing a road that could help the president be reelected? The, you know, the, the, uh, the Clinton impeachment, impeachment ended with, with uh, Justice Rehnquist saying, William Jefferson Clinton is hereby acquitted. All right. So we're going to we're
1: going to pick up after the break. We're going to talk about the growing presidential field among Democrats. I'm David Fulkin and this is On Point.
0: A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains.
6: Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite.
0: I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide?
5: There should be some...
1: This is On Point. I'm NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik. In other news this week, the prime minister of Iraq has agreed to resign after weeks of anti-government protest, condition that is on the naming of a successor. Dozens of people have been killed in violent protests against the government for unemployment, government corruption, and for failure to provide fundamental services effectively. More than 50,000 people in East Texas remain under a mandatory evacuation order as the fire continues to burn at a chemical plant one day after two massive explosions there. And Twitter bans the account of a Republican candidate trying to unseat Democratic Representative Ilhan Omar of Minnesota after calling for her to be hanged. You can join the conversation. What candidates are appealing to you? Who do you want to win? Which candidates do you think would best match up against the president? Follow us on Twitter. Find us on Facebook at On Point Radio. We're talking with Kimberly Atkins. She is senior news correspondent for WBUR. Janet Hook, national political reporter for the Los Angeles Times. And, of course, On Point's own news analyst, Jack Beattie. Uh, Let's turn uh, for one moment uh, to uh, a clip that – caught our eye, involved outgoing uh, U.S. Energy Secretary Rick Perry. He reached an unexpected conclusion at the tail of some scriptural analysis on Monday. Speaking with Ed Henry on Fox News, Perry said he believed President Trump was sent by God.
6: God's used uh, imperfect people all through history. King David wasn't perfect. Uh, Saul wasn't perfect. Solomon wasn't perfect. Uh, and I actually gave the president. Uh, a little one-pager, on those Old Testament kings about a month ago. Hmm. And I shared it with him. I said, Mr. President, I know there are people that say, you know, you, you said you were the chosen one. Uh, and and I, I said, you were. I, I said, if, if you're a believing Christian, you understand God's plan uh, for the people who uh, rule and, 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 and judge over us on, on this planet in our, in our government.
1: Janet Hook, you've been out in the hustings uh, following the 2020 race uh, uh, pretty closely. Uh, Before we turn our eye to the Democrats, the president at one point said that his favorite book was the Bible and was essentially unable to mention much from it. How tightly has he been able to bind uh, uh, the uh, religious vote, I guess, particularly the white evangelical vote to him uh, as he looks ahead to a year from now in the general elections?
3: Um, an amazingly stronghold he has on the evangelical white evangelical vote, um, and it always seems like such an irony, given that he's got s- such a, um, a raucous secular persona um, with stories of, you know, uh, that suggest his morals are, are definitely not perfect. Um, can we can we agree
1: th- that, that can we agree that'll be the band name if the four of us ever uh, get a group together? Will be raucous secular uh, uh, persona. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's not bad. It's not bad. But, you know, he has done, accomplished a lot for the priorities of the, uh, the, especially the politically active and attuned evangelical right, which is, you know, by solidifying a conservative majority on the Supreme Court and throughout the federal judiciary. Um, it's a gift. And I think that he has a lot of loyalty in, in that swath of the population because of that.
1: Kim Atkins, I want to turn now to the Democrats. As we think about Joe Biden, there have been a lot of folks getting a lot of coverage, Uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Pete Buttigieg, others. Joe Biden actually, if you look at the real clear politics, has sort of stayed at the top of the heap uh, relatively consistently in terms of national polling. And I realize that these things are fought state by state, right? One of the things, though, that has been fairly consistent has been support among African-American Democratic voters Uh, and That's been the case even though there have been two significant and now a third significant African-American candidates in the race. Um, To what degree do you think this is likely to be sustained by uh, uh, the former vice president as, uh, as new people keep coming on board and keep trying to chip away at him?
7: I think uh, it's unclear as of yet. I think, even though we are within a year of the election, uh, I think for a lot of people, it's still early for a lot of reasons, including the fact that there are so many candidates in the Democratic field and because the impeachment is taking so much of the national coverage and spotlight uh, that these candidates have not had the same opportunity to break through, certainly in a national way, uh, as they would in any other election season. But I think with Joe Biden, Uh, There are a few things going uh, for him. Uh, Demographically, he particularly has uh, strong support among older black voters. These Hmm. are people who uh, know him, know his name, know he was a part of the Obama administration, uh, and by and large have a very strong opinion of Barack Obama and his presidency. Uh, I also think, look, black voters are savvy, it doesn't just um, they didn't support Barack Obama just because he was black. They supported him because they supported his message. His message resonated. He had a way of going to these communities and speaking to people and understanding the issues that they cared about. And just because you were a black candidate, if you're not able to do that, you won't see that same response. And I think that's why we have not seen those same numbers for a Cory Booker, for a Kamala Harris, uh, who has a lot of questions. Uh, there are a lot of questions within the black community about her Policing policies from her time as AG uh, in California. Uh, Deval Patrick, the former governor of Massachusetts, is just unknown. I was with my mom a couple weeks ago and we were watching him on Meet the Press and she asked who that was. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think he's got a long way of introducing himself, especially coming in so late. Uh, so Joe Biden has all those things going for him uh, within this very important voting block of black people.
1: And Kim Atkins, you remind me when you talk about the pragmatism of Black voters. You know they strongly supported Kimberly. uh, Kimberly, they strongly supported Hillary Clinton in 2016 until Barack Obama proved he was viable in Iowa, and then you saw this real shift, right, in terms of people saying, "Okay, well, if he can, if he can play at the top level and win, I'm going to give him a close look." And he's an African American with with a you know strong, seemingly pointing towards a new generation, a new path forward.
7: You're absolutely right, and I think I hear voters. Uh, I hear voters now saying things like, "You know, I like Kamala Harris, but I'm not sure that she can win." It's the perception of their electability that is getting in the way. The same thing that happened with Barack Obama in 2008, and he was able to overcome that by making that case to voters and winning. So I think once you see some of these early primary state contests playing out, uh, the 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 atmosphere can shift dramatically. I just think it's still. A still bit too early. I saw
1: one interview, Kim, with uh, I think it was uh, an African-American college uh, student, uh, historically African-American college uh, in the South, basically saying, look, I'm not supporting Kamala Harris on the basis of her being having uh, African-American descent, you know, and heritage. Uh, I need more than that. And it just doesn't appeal to me strongly enough Uh, that there was this this sort of reserve about Kamala Harris, who's... uh, you know, the excitement that seemed to be foreshadowed for her campaign never quite materialized.
7: Yeah. And there's a, a, a really deep look uh, by The Times today about her candidacy and how uh, it, it sort of tanked after seeming to have a really auspicious start. Uh, but yeah, she has a lot of specific issues uh, that are concerning among some in the black community, uh, particularly regarding uh, her her Uh, history as a prosecutor, as an attorney general, Uh, the same things that Joe Biden still uh, has to answer for, for his support of things like the uh, 1994 crime bill. Uh, But black voters want somebody who is going to listen to their issues. It is not a pure identity thing. They're not just looking for someone who looks like them in the mirror. They're looking for someone who understands their communities, understands the things that they are uh, concerned about. Those issues are consistently things like education, housing. Of the economy. Uh, and when they can speak in a way that resonates, and we've seen uh, upward trajectory, they still have a long way to go, of candidates like Elizabeth Warren, when they speak to people, when she speaks about their policy, they're beginning to resonate. Her numbers with Black voters are, are slowly going up. Uh, it takes a lot of work uh, to, to make that pitch. And and we're seeing so far that it isn't working for everybody. And Janet
1: Hook, to uh, uh, Talk about Elizabeth Warren for a moment. Like, she seemed to have sort of a white heat, uh, seemed to cut uh, Joe Biden's legs out from under him for a little bit there, seemed to eclipse Bernie Sanders, uh, who was a little bit to her left, but nonetheless uh, uh, not that dissimilar on a lot of issues in some ways. Uh, Janet Hook now seems uh, – excuse me, Janet, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren now seems to be herself fading a little bit. What's her plan for that?
3: Um, well, it, it remains to be seen what her plan is going to be for, for changing the trajectory, because all along, every time I would talk to the, the Warren campaign about what their strategy was, they said, we set it on day one. We're going to keep on going with the strategy we have. And it worked very, very well for a while, kind of really kind of steady across the year, nonstop progression up in the polls with her her town halls, her every week a new policy plan, um, and I think she hit a rough spot, spot. It has at least plateaued and even dropped in some ways in some places for two reasons. One, um, she kind of uh, was unsteady in the rollout of the specifics of her health care plan. First of all, she was criticized for not being more specific. She was just saying, I'm with Bernie on Medicare for all. She put out a very specific financing plan for Medicare for all that was criticized for being kind of unrealistic or you know, costing too much. And then she revised it to make it a little bit more gradual and appealing to people who weren't kind of hardcore leftists. So the unsteadiness of that rollout I think has hurt her. It kind of was very off brand for her. She's kind of known as the person who just has it knows what she wants and she can lay it all out in knows great detail. knows who she is, right? Yeah. And the other thing is that simultaneously, um, Pete Buttigieg has been rising as a candidate. And while he has a very different ideology, um, he's trying to be seem more of the the moderate centrist type than she. They actually appeal to a very similar demographic. They're kind of competing with each other for the well-educated, white, more affluent voter. So as he rises, I think he cuts into both Joe Biden on the centrist voter and uh, with Elizabeth Warren, perhaps, in some ways.
1: Kind of an astonishing story from the mayor of the fourth-largest city of of Indiana. I want to take a couple calls. We appreciate our listeners this day and all days. Uh, From Tampa, Florida, Julie, thanks for listening. Thanks for calling in.
4: Hi. uh, I just wanted to make the point that I'm actually a registered Republican and an evangelical, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to make the point that we're not just a big, lump crowd. Um, I did not vote for Trump the first time around because I— not like him and did not respect him. Um, I don't want to vote for him this time around either. Mm
0: -hmm. Most of my
4: evangelical friends, even the ones that did vote for him, only did because he beat out all the other candidates in the primary and there was no one left except Clinton. Um, I would very much like to have another candidate to vote for. I would vote for a Democrat, but the Democrats, unfortunately, just seem to be so drawn to sort of more far-left candidates that, you know, that's not someone I probably could vote for. So I'm really... Eager to see who they come up
1: with. Thank you for that, Julie. Appreciate it. Now, call uh, from Madison, Wisconsin. Thanks for listening, Ron. What what are your thoughts here?
2: Well, I certainly uh, appreciate the comment we just had. Uh I agree with that lady uh, with that. I'm a Republican since 1964, a very studious, attentive one. I'm not a Trumpian, never voted for him, never would. Um, Uh And uh, for 30 years, I've watched him. Uh, I'm looking for a Truly centrist Democrat. I'm, I like the idea of Michael Bloomberg, mm-hmm. uh, who could be of either, either party. I will not vote for Warren or Sanders. Mm-hmm. I'm not impressed with Biden.
1: You're not so, impressed with uh, Biden, uh-huh.
2: No, never have been. He just never has impressed me. He just seems mm-hmm. like kind of a dud. Uh, okay. But I would, uh, I, would, I, would, I would prefer a pro-life person, but I would vote for Bloomberg. And uh, let me
1: just ask you, Ron, before I let you go, uh, uh, Janet Hook of the Los Angeles Times just mentioned that uh, Pete Buttigieg of, uh, of Indiana is sort of presenting a centrist-ish profile, a more moderate profile. Is that someone who appeals to you or not?
2: It does seem a bit more moderate, but I'm, I don't trust him in that category. Uh, I mm-hmm. think he's uh, still too far to the left. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the thing is, uh, I don't care for either the Tea Party or the left. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I get these texts from uh, MoveOn.org. Uh, they're the left version of the Tea Party, as far as I'm concerned. I just, I think the the, the moderate one—that's more the center thing where you can that kind of do go it for right you. and left both. Um, sometimes I think that uh, that's where the true nature of this country is.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much for that, Ron. We appreciate that call from Madison, Wisconsin. Jack Beattie, I want to. The, our caller mentioned Mike Bloomberg. I wanted to play a clip for you. Mike Bloomberg kicked off his presidential campaign in Norfolk, Virginia, on Monday. In this video from his visit, uh, which was posted to Twitter, Bloomberg positioned himself as squarely running against President Trump rather than the Democratic field.
5: I know what it takes to beat Trump because I already have, and I will do it again, defeating Trump And rebuilding America is the most urgent and important fight of our lives. And I'm going all in.
1: Now, I'm not convinced that actually in Norfolk, those uh, strings uh, swelled quite so much in person, right, Jack? But nonetheless, what does uh, uh, Mike Bloomberg represent? uh, And uh, how forceful a candidate does he seem to be to you?
6: Well, I think Hamlet spoke to him. Uh, Mike Bloomberg is a, quote, prince of our disorder. That disorder is inequality. Someone calculated this week that Bloomberg spending $34 million of his own money to be elected president is the equivalent of a median American family spending $39 on a Movie night. His riches, in Dr. Johnson's words, are beyond the dreams of avarice. And to think that in an era when the United States has been tilting toward a plutocracy, now we have a plutocrat buying ads from in places like Jonesboro, Arkansas, Bangor, Maine, spreading his millions across the country. And on the basis of that, trying to seek uh, uh, the Democratic nomination, essentially it's sort of saying – well, let's just – since we've purchased the system, why don't we just uh, buy the presidency too? So I Jack, mean it is an appalling Jack, moment I think for American politics. <laughs> so
1: Jack, just briefly, we've only got a little little time, 15, 20 seconds left. But you almost think it doesn't matter what his positions are, whether he showed himself liberal on, uh, on uh, gun policy or moderate on policing policy. You think that misses the point of the, the idea of a multi-multi-billionaire many times over being able to buy his way into the race?
6: In short, yes, I do.
1: All right. You've been hearing the words there of Jack Beatty. He's on points of political analyst. at uh, Big thanks to you, Jack. Thank you. We've also been hearing from Kimberly Atkins. She's senior news correspondent, my colleague at WBUR. Let's talk Turkey again soon.
7: Thanks, David.
1: And from Janet Hook, national political reporter for Los Angeles Times. Thanks so much once more for taking time to share your holiday with us.
3: My pleasure. Thanks for having you me.
1: Can- you can continue the conversation, get the On Point podcast at our website, onpointradio.org. You can follow us on Twitter, find us on Facebook at On Point Radio. On Point is produced by Anna Bauman, Justine Down, Mylene Mata, Stefano Katsonis, Wes Martin, James Ross, Dory Scheimer, Alex Schroeder, Grace Tatter, and Adam Waller. With help from Sharip Campbell, Jeffrey Lyon, and Sidney Wertheim. Our executive producer is Karen Schiffman. I'm thankful for them all, each and every one, and for all of you. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being part of our show. I'm David Folkenflick, and this is on point.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes featuring Mindy Luber, CEO of Series, a nonprofit dedicated to integrating sustainability into businesses. Here's host Kurt Nickish,
3: Are the people who are working with ESG
5: data now at companies, are they in a sustainability department? Does this just become part of general strategy or part of finance? How is that evolution happening with the actual people who are looking and working with the numbers?
8: So with both companies and investors, the cute idea of social responsibility that was at a manager level or something their foundations dealt with, that's gone. It is very clear based on data, based on facts, based on trends, that integrating sustainability into the core business is crucial. I mean, you cannot have a climate goal that says we're going to get to a net zero by 2040 if every department at the enterprise is not working on that. That's your manufacturing people. It's your supply chain people. So we find that there is often a sustainability team, But they're laying out a plan that involves almost every enterprise, every office, every part of a firm. And that's what we're seeing because nobody can do the kind of cross-organizational work in one little group. It involves the entire team. It involves HR. Who are you hiring? Is DEI being implemented? How is that working? As it relates to where do you get your resources? Are there enough natural resources to make your product? What are the auto companies doing now that they've committed to, by 2035, there will be no combustion engine vehicles coming off their assembly line for consumer vehicles? So sustainability is no longer a cute, a niche, a part of something off to the side. It is an integral part of almost every major enterprise and every major investor.
0: Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Marotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.